The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 3 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC3. And this is Secret Church 3, Episode 5. Major shifts. Major shifts. These are connections. As you read larger units of text, look for critical places where the text seems to take a new turn, where a major shift happens. Now, this could be on a small scale, just verse by verse, or it could be on a large scale. I think I've got listed there in your notes, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, major shift in the book of 2 Samuel. You read, if you were to sit down and read that book through, you would see 2 Samuel 1 to 10 telling us the story of David, and everything is good for David. Everything is good in the kingdom. He is leading well. Then you get to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Anybody know what happens? David and Bathsheba. Adultery, murder, death of a child. And you read 2 Samuel 13 to 22, and it's a whole other picture of David, an entirely different picture of David. You can't walk away from 2 Samuel and say this sin did not affect his life. It affected his life radically. Everything is completely different in 2 Samuel 13 and 22 than it was in 2 Samuel 1 to 10. That's a major shift. Acts 8, 26, I included this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. What's interesting is this is a major shift because they've gone to Judea and Samaria and people are coming to faith in Christ all over the place. And God says to Philip, now you go south to the desert road. And it's kind of like a picture of a Billy Graham crusade where everybody's coming to faith in Christ, and God says to Billy Graham, I want you to go into the middle of the Sahara. And Philip's like, well, I, this is where the action is. Uh, I'd rather not go to this road. It's a major shift, but it's showing that God, yes, is concerned about the multitudes, but he's also concerned about a eunuch over here that needs to hear the gospel. It's a great picture. Uh, Romans 3, 20 to 21, one of my favorite shifts in all of Scripture. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That caps off a whole picture of the sinfulness and depravity of man from Romans 1.18 to 3.20. And then he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And he goes into a picture of the gospel. It's a major shift. Same thing in Ephesians 3 and 4. You remember we talked about how first half of Ephesians, explanation of salvation. Second half, application of salvation. See the shift here. Last verse in Ephesians 3, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then you got to shift. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And it goes into a whole other, much more practical picture, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Look for those major shifts. That's what the word connects. Okay? We're looking for these six things. Next, I can't remember if we're number four or five, but look for the word, what the word compares Look for what the word compares. I think that's number four. Look for what the word compares. Does the author compare certain items, ideas, or individuals? Simile. I know some of you are thinking we're back in English class, but this is why. This is why, and I mentioned students earlier, this is why, students, you, you soak in English class. Not so you can write a good paper. Ultimately, so you can know the Word of God, so you can study the Word of God. This is why we sharpen our minds, so that we can know God's Word. So simile, some of you haven't heard these things since grammar class a long time ago, but simile, look for expressed comparison of two things that are different. Now, simile uses two words, either like or as, okay? That's what a simile does. Psalm 42, 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's a comparison between a deer that longs for water and my soul's longing for God. John 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, a reference back to the book of Numbers, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 1 Peter 2, 2, which we looked at earlier. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. It's like babies is how we crave the Word of God. Similes, give that comparison with as or like. Metaphors, do the same thing. Look for implied comparisons between two things. It's not quite as explicit. Not necessarily using the word like or as with a metaphor. Look at John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. This is Jesus using this picture. And this is really just an extended analogy in some ways, which we'll get to in a second. But... It's a picture of him using this metaphor of vine and branches to talk about his relationship with his followers. James 3, 3 through 6, you see it all over this. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. You see the comparisons there that give us these word pictures that help us understand the power of our words, the power of the tongue. Next, allegory. Look for instances where the author uses a certain image to communicate a deeper meaning in the text. There's images that are used. You look at this, this passage. It's a long one. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. We'll just read the first part. It sets up the image. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Listen to what the author says. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. It talks about that. And then it goes on to talk about later on, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And it begins to compare this picture of the slave slave woman and the free woman. And the picture of that is, is is an allegory which basically gives us a comparison between that story and what this looks like when it comes to our relationship with Christ and the covenant we are under. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Next, type. And this is really similar to that. And I know this is kind of, we're getting into some chiasm realm here, but just follow with me, okay? Look for instances where the author uses a picture to demonstrate something to come in the future. This doesn't happen all the time. But just to give you a picture of what's happening, and the most, the clearest one is when we see the New Testament and Old Testament talking about Adam as a type of Christ. You've got a Romans 5 listed there. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. And what you see, you go back and read through the last half of Romans 5, and you see a comparison over and over again between Adam and Christ. And the picture of Adam, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 15 there too, the picture of Adam being the first man and Christ being the new man. And just, through, just as through the disobedience of one man the many are made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. Just as sin reigned in death through this one man, grace reigns in life to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord through this one man. And what we've got is a picture of Adam and Christ, really kind of a comparison between the two that bridge the gap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We don't see a lot of those, but when you see them, that's what's going on there. 
Next, number five, what we're looking for. Look for what the word contrasts. We looked at what the word compares. What does it contrast? These items, individuals, things that it contrasts. And we look for one main word here is but. But is one of the most important words you will see in Scripture. So know that buts are very, very important here, okay? They're very, very important. Just like Romans 3, 21, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. That is huge. So whenever you see it, stop and ask, what is, what's the contrast here? Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look for these contrasting metaphors, differences between two things. We saw a metaphor where two things are compared. Sometimes they're contrasting. Luke 11, 11 through 13, which we studied here at Brook Hills and earlier this summer. Which of you, if your father, uh, which of you fathers, if you ask for a fish, will give him a snake? And it begins to talk about fathers and how they treat their children good. It's as if then, though you are evil, know how, give, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And it's a contrast between fathers who are evil and the perfect Father who is completely good and always gives what is good. So look for what the word contrasts. Finally th- final thing we look for, number six, look for how the word communicates. How the word communicates. Are there words, images, phrases that communicate emotions and moods and tones? This is, this is, this is that, that part of reading the Bible imaginatively. Emotions. Look for words that convey particular feelings or emotions. We've got to be careful not to study the Bible like it's just this academic lesson that we've got to get in our minds. That leads to boring study of the Bible. Let it come alive. Listen to this text, Jeremiah 3. This is God speaking to his people. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Can you read that and not be affected emotionally? You get into the heart of God, this picture that he uses of adultery to describe unfaithfulness among his people. That is a, a heavy emotion. You get to Galatians 4, 12 through 16. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me. I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? There was conflict at this point between Paul and the churches in Galatia. And he's talking about this love and this tension that's there that is so real emotionally. And I didn't, there's so many examples. When you, when you read Genesis 22, don't just read about Abraham going up on a mountain with his son Isaac. Imagine the emotions of a father looking at a son that he's about to slay because his God just told him to do that. What are you feeling at that point? Imagine Isaac looking up at Abraham. What are you thinking about your father at that point? Are you confused, scared? Can you imagine Moses 
Imagine Moses standing on Mount Nebo and looking out and not being able to go into the land he's about to go to, the, the, the people of Israel about to go through, and imagine the hurt involved in that. Imagine those emotions. David, the pain. Not just read 2 Samuel 12 or 13 to 22 and think about the effects of sin. Feel the pain and the weight of sin the second half of 2 Samuel. How did that affect him? Emotions and mood. Look for evidence of the, father, of, the, of the author's demeanor as he writes. I love this, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now that seems, okay, well, we've heard that before and we sing songs about that. But where did, where did Paul write that? See in the Ritz? No. I don't know how that will translate into other languages, but he's, he's not in a very wealthy hotel. He is, he's in, he's in prison. He's in prison and he's writing, rejoice in the Lord always. This text looks a lot different when you feel the weight of Paul behind bars. You want to transport your sense into this passage and feel what it's feeling, this mood and then the tone. Look at the emotional terms and instances of mood and then look at the overall tone. Is there anger? Is it scolding? Is it pleasure? You look at Lamentations. I tell you what, just for sake of time, we're not going to read through these, but Lamentations, feel the tone of heaviness there. Matthew 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being contemned to hell? Jesus is probably not saying this with a smile on his face in Matthew 23. Galatians 23, Galatians 3, who, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he speaks very sternly to them. It's kind of a scolding tone. Feel the tone of the passage. So, this is step one in these sheets. Step one is observation. What do I see? Observe. You might in some passages, and we've seen some examples, you can do this with an individual verse, and you can spend an hour in one verse if you're really looking at it. You can do it with paragraphs. You can do it with entire discourses or segments of Scripture, and we're going to talk about some of that later. And it's important for us to see, not just individual verses. All this stuff connects together. The reminder I want to give you on this first section right here is be patient. Learn to listen and learn to look, and you will discover things that you never saw before. And the beauty is, this is just step one. We can't jump past this. This is just step one. I think in your notes there, you've got Acts chapter 1, verse 8 mentioned. If we had more time, I'd like for us to walk through just this one verse and, and think through how this would look to write it out. But when you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember the squares? How many squares do you see? You see 30 different squares? You look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'm convinced there are hundreds, literally hundreds of observations to see there in that one verse. It is, it is a feast. But, whenever you see but in Scripture, ask what's the contrast. And you begin to dive into Acts 1, 1 through 7, and the contrast from those with verse 8, and you see that Jesus was led by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God was on him, and now, but, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you It's a contrast. It's an incredible picture. The Spirit of God that led Jesus while he was on this earth is the Spirit of God that leads you while you're on this earth. Now that's good, okay, but you, pronoun. You see it repeated three different times in the first part. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. The Spirit is extremely personal. 
coming on you, your life, not just the preacher, not just this spiritual giant over here or there. You, ladies and gentlemen, the Spirit comes on you. You let this be personalized. You will. Now, this is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They didn't have the Spirit of God yet. They were waiting for the Spirit. Now, that's a significant difference, obviously, with us. We have the Spirit of God. So what they were waiting for, I've already got. Receive. Something we let come into us. It's not, it's not something we do to earn. It's not something we go out. The Spirit comes upon us like, like a gift. We receive a gift. Power. I mean, you see every single word, and you see how they start to connect together. In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the conjunction that brings them all together is and. It does not say you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth. You do not choose, I'm going to impact this place or this place or this place for the glory of Christ. I'm going to impact it all for the glory of Christ. My life was created to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And to sell God, to say I'm not going to impact the world is to sell God short of the purpose for why he has put the Holy Spirit in me. You see, there are Loads of sermons in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's all over this. And so what you would do, and this is, I've got this verse here because we're going to kind of use this as we think through tonight. You would take Acts 1, 8, page script, a page like this, and you would write down, okay, this right here. And I've got at the top, write down significant notes concerning who, what, where, when, why, how. What does the word emphasize? Repeat, connect, compare, contrast. How does the word communicate? And you would just... This should be nowhere near enough room. Nowhere near enough room. And this is step one. Step one. It's going to take time to study the Bible, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. We haven't even started looking at application. How's this plan in our life? Do this right here. Okay, that's observation. Step two. Understand their home, okay? We're in this other culture now. We've seen all these things. Now what in the world does it mean? From exploration to interpretation. Now, this is key. Taking this step from exploration to interpretation is key because you can look in Scripture and find passages that will justify anything you want it to justify. The reason we have cults is because people have taken Scripture and they've twisted this verse or that verse to deny the deity of Christ and as a result we have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have places they can go in here and look and find where it talks about being baptized for the dead and you've got this or that cult in Asia that I've heard about and seen the effects of who take this or that verse and put them together and create something that is completely unbiblical. You've got, you've got snake handling churches in some rural areas of the United States that justify snakes and their worship by the word. I think it's important for us to know whether or not the word is telling us to do that or not. So how do you make sure that you understand what the word means? From what the word says to what the word means. Now, I'm not operating under the illusion tonight that if you do these things, then we'll all come to my meaning. Remember, that's not the point. It's not about my meaning or your meaning. The goal is to come to the meaning of the text as best as possible. But we all know that even when we walk through some of these things, there will still be some differences, some areas that are not completely clear. 
We need to be okay with that, but what we need to know is how do you decipher between good interpretation and bad interpretation? Because sometimes there is good interpretation that sometimes leads some people to believe this and some people to believe this based on a particular passage of Scripture. Now, obviously, one of them's right, one of them's wrong. And I know when I look at my own life, there's a lot of Scriptures I may interpret that are not completely right. I know there's probably areas of my theology that are not completely right. The only problem is I don't know which ones they are. And so, until I know which ones they are, until we know which ones they are, we take good interpretation and we walk through it as best as we can and we make sure we're being responsible with the text of Scripture. doesn't mean that if we do this, all do this, we're all going to agree on everything. But it does mean, I believe, that we're going to agree on the things that are, that are most central to Scripture. And then we're going to have interpretation, good, solid interpretation that may lead us to accept a little different here or there, but it's not going to divide us in the body of Christ. It's based on good interpretation. From questions of content to questions of context. I want us to think about context. The definition of context is that which goes with the text. That which goes with the text. Now that in and of itself is still a little vague, a little, little amb- ambiguous, but that which goes with the text. And, well, we're going to dive in. I won't even try to begin explaining it because we're going to see it unfold. The dilemma created by context. context. Two things. The Bible communicates eternal content. So what we've got in this book is eternal, but it also communicates through specific context. There is a first century context that the New Testament communicates to that's different from the context of the Old Testament. And it's certainly different from the context we live in today. So the question becomes, how are we going to go from the then and there to the here and now? In order to make that jump, we've got to be familiar with context. Dedication to context. We need to work to step into the author's shoes and determine his original intent. That's key. We want to go to the Word and discover what, what did this word originally mean. Because, now this is a major statement right here. A biblical text can never mean what it never meant. Okay? Follow with me there. It can't mean today what it didn't mean then. Biblical text can never mean what it never meant. We've got to step into the author's shoes and just recreate his ideas, his experiences, put ourselves in his shoes and try to think through how this was being communicated, how it was being read, what did it mean? It's what we're looking at when it comes to interpretation. Context shapes meaning. All these things that surround a text, the culture of that text, the history, historical background, the meaning behind this word and that word, context shapes meaning. Let me give you just a real practical example that gives you an illustration of context. Imagine a stop sign. A stop sign. A red octagon, stop written in white on the front of it. Now... When you see the stop sign, it's going to depend on where you see it. It's going to affect what you do. So if you were driving and you come to a four-way intersection and you see a stop sign, then you're going to come to a stop. You're going to be there for eight seconds and you're going to look to the left and to the right and then you're going to move forward, right? That's what you do. On the road, it means one thing, but imagine you're walking through an antique shop and you see an old, ragged stop sign from a historic place. And you're walking through that antique shop, are you immediately going to stop? 
Wait eight seconds, look to your left and to your right, and then continue moving toward it. You pick up a brochure, and on the front, grabs your attention by saying stop, and you're walking along the road. Are you going to stop? Look left and right and keep moving forward. When you are saying something to your wife, for example, that is bothering her, annoying her even, and she looks at you and she says, stop, what are you going to do? You're not going to look both ways. You're going to look down. When you're looking at your wife and you're saying all kinds of beautiful, lovely things to her about how beautiful and lovely she is, and she looks at you and she says, stop, what are you going to do? You're going to keep going. (laughs) Context shapes meaning. Same stop in different places means different things. So we've got to look at the context to understand the meaning. Make sense? The rule of context. Context rules. Okay? Context rules. Put asterisks, everything there. If we ignore the context of this book, we can twist this book to mean all kinds of different things. We've got to know the context. And there's really two contexts that we have to know. The diversity of context. First context we have to know is our context. Our context. And the second context we have to know is their context. Their context. So, I want us to think about the context we bring to the passage of Scripture and then the context that they bring to the passage of Scripture. Two different contexts. Let's think about ours first. We've got to understand that when we come to the Bible, we bring a context to it. We've got, I'm going to divide it up here into pre-understandings and presuppositions. Here's what I mean by that. Pre-understandings are all of our preconceived notions that we consciously or unconsciously bring to the text. And all of us bring preconceived notions to the table here. And they're based on a lot of different things. One is our pride. Especially when we're studying a familiar text of Scripture, many times we bring an idea of what it means before we even start reading the words. And we've got this idea, well, I already know what this one means. Pride is this idea in Bible study that knows what it means before listening to the text to tell you what it means. And we've got to avoid pride. So we've got to come to the text humbly. Second, our agenda. Sometimes we come to the text with a theological agenda. And maybe we have this theological slant. And so we come to a text and we find in that text whatever supports our theological slant. Maybe you are Calvinist and you come and you say, well, I'm going to find predestination in this. Or maybe you don't believe in predestination or something like that. And so you come and you twist scriptures that talk about predestination. We bring our theological agenda and we begin to skew the meaning of different texts. We've got two options. Number one, we can stand over the meaning of the text. Or number two, we can kneel under the meaning of the text. And true Bible study is the second. Kneeling under the meaning of the text. We don't try to find scriptures that fit our agenda. We let scripture determine our agenda. Next, our familiarity. 
Don't skip over a text just because it's familiar. I mentioned studying. We did at Brook Hills in Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer there. And that study for me, as I was studying that passage of Scripture over those four weeks, we talked about prayer from Luke 11. It was, it was four weeks where every week I was thinking, have I ever really studied this text before? It was just coming alive in new ways. And God was seeing things that I'd never seen before in the text that are right there. It's not that I was uncovering something new. I was seeing what's been there, and I'd missed it's almost like reading it for the first time. Our familiarity we bring. And then our culture. And this is big. Our culture has an influence on how we read the Bible. Our culture. And just a small example. You go to Matthew 5-7, to Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And we come to that and we say, okay, I hear what he's saying, but... Let's be honest. Someone strikes you on the right cheek and you keep turning the other cheek to them, they're going to run over you. So you obviously can't do that. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic and you let them have your cloak as well, they take everything that you have from from you. So obviously that's not what it means. Well, at that point, we've just imposed a very self-centered American materialistic culture that says, I need to do what protects myself better than anything else on a scripture passage that's intended to say exactly what it's saying. We bring our culture we don't even realize it sometimes. Consciously or unconsciously, we bring it to there. Now, our culture involves a lot of things. It involves our language, words. We've got to realize that when some words were said in the first century, they meant different things than words than how we use those words in the 21st century. And so we need to know what the word meant there. That's part of what translation does and why we need a good translation. Customs. Different customs we have, different customs that were there, but we bring our customs to the table. Stories about from our culture, family. You look at uh, family context in the United States and family context in the Middle, Middle East, family context in the Middle East is thick. It's tribal, really, in many parts of the Middle East where everything is about family and protecting the honor of your family. Not, not so much the case in the increasingly American picture of family that we have. And that means that somebody studying the Bible from the Middle East and studying the Bible from America are going to bring two different contexts to any understanding about teaching on family. We've got to be aware of that. Our values, economics, politics, ethnicity, gender. Gender, our views on gender according to our culture, we bring to the table. Religion, arts, images. We bring all these things to the table whenever we begin to interpret Scripture. And we don't set out to intentionally misread the Bible. But there's this subconscious world that we've got based on our culture and many times our familiarity or our agendas or our pride that we bring to the table that we've got to be careful of. And here's the deal. We can't be completely objective. We all bring subjectivities to a certain extent to a text of Scripture. Our goal, though, is to minimize subjectivity. Minimize subjectivity. We want to eliminate as much of that subjectivity as possible. That's our pre-understandings. But we don't want to... I don't even think we want to be completely objective, and here's why. Based on our presuppositions, there's some things we bring to the text that are good, we don't have a completely blank slate when we come to this text. We have faith in God when we come to this text. We have faith in Christ. We have a belief in the power of God. 
We believe these certain things that do affect the way we look at the text. The fact that we believe the Bible is inspired. That this is the word of God by his spirit. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is unified. We believe that this Bible doesn't contradict itself. This book doesn't contradict itself. And so we see how the word doesn't contradict itself. We believe the Bible is diverse. That there's all kinds of different ways that God's word is communicated to us. And we believe the Bible is supernatural. What that means is... God is bigger than us, and there are some parts of the Bible that we don't completely understand, and we're okay with that. The Bible has tension and mystery to it. These are presuppositions that are actually a good thing to bring to the text. Finally, the fact that the Bible is purposeful, that the purpose of this book is to bring us into the image of Christ. The Bible has that purpose. So, That's the context that we bring to the table. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.